Welcome back again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the concluding episode of this 10-part series that examined the big picture of this terrible warlord era. As I said at the outset, this was an oft-requested topic here at the China History Podcast. These warlords have always been a subject of great interest in popular Chinese history. There were a lot of historical events happening in China during the 20th century. And these years, from 1916 to 1928, are often swept under the rug and don't get as much attention. So I hope this series helped to fill in a few blanks for you. And as we have seen throughout the past episodes, these warlords weren't such a great bunch of guys. Interesting, yes. In some cases, downright unforgettable. I've introduced a number of them to you and tried to show you how they operated and what some of them were all about. They made incalculable contributions to the art of greed and looking out for number one. Took it to great heights. In all the thousands of years of Chinese history, going back to you, the great, the land had time and again produced these incredible leaders and heroes who founded dynasty, saved the country from invasion, or brought great peace and prosperity to the land. But during the 1920s, rather than having a great leader, a nation builder, waiting in the wings to, I don't know, make China great again, instead, you had these warlords. And with their armies and the might they wielded and the odious and egregious lengths they went to, to enrich themselves and, you know, guard their power for the sake of the perks of power and all the human suffering they caused, their greatest crime was perhaps that they held China back at the historical worst possible moment. While Japan and the West were setting the world on fire with all the discoveries and benefits of the Industrial Revolution and the engineering innovations of the Roaring Twenties, China wasted decades first dealing with a dysfunctional and dying imperial house, and then with these generals and majors out in a world of their own, dragging the country down, not to mention the good people of China, too. After the Northern Expedition officially ended in the summer of 1928 and Beijing had been taken, all the victorious generals had their great moment, and then Chiang Kai-shek called a meeting of all the big names at the time, and he held it over in the western hills, just outside of Beijing. Feng Yuxiang, Yan Shishan, Bai Chongxi, Li Zongren, and others. There was this big ceremony where they all visited Sun Yat-sen's tomb. You know, it was still up in Beijing at this time. And they paid their respects to the spiritual founder of the KMT. Now, Jiang will later have an elaborate mausoleum built in Nanjing, and it's there where the father of modern China was later interred and remains today. If you remember from that old Morris two-gun cone episode, CHP 130 and 131, yeah, Moisha was part of that cortege that brought Sun's body to its final resting place in Nanjing. And by the way, Moish didn't do too bad in the arms business during the warlord era. And some of you may or may not recall Sir Edmund Backhouse. Yeah, he too dabbled in the arms biz. During this conference in the Western Hills with all his allies, Jiang laid out his master plan and discussed the matter of demilitarization and centralizing everything. Although nobody got up and walked out of the meeting, it wasn't received very well by any of these men present. The whole idea about surrendering their power over the regions they controlled for the sake of a strong central government, well, they didn't like the idea in 1916, 
and they didn't like it in 1928 either. When they saw what Jiang's plan looked like, uh, these warlords began to have second thoughts again. But for now, well, no one was saying or doing anything. It was always the same thing. They were cool with being part of the Republic of China. They just insisted that they be left alone by the center to run their province and maintain an army. And that's what it boiled down to. Eastern Zhou Dynasty mentality, I guess you could say. Like Duke Huan of Qi back in the 7th century BCE. Yeah, he was happy to say yeah, yeah, yeah to the Zhou Dynasty king in Luoyang as long as that king didn't try and interfere in Qi internal affairs. Same with these warlords and Chiang Kai-shek and his Nanjing government. In their eyes, these warlords looked at Chiang Kai-shek and thought, yeah, he was just another one of them. Why should they surrender their power to him? Jiang's sad reality was that he was only the master of the Yangtze River region from Wuhan to Shanghai, in Jiangsu and Zhejiang and parts of Shandong province. That's it. Everywhere else in China, like I said, Eastern Zhou Dynasty. Now, before we start looking at the events in 1929 and 1930, let's take a step back and talk about something else pretty important that concerned the warlords that's been going on in the background around the time of the Northern Expedition. Now, I sort of left you hanging about whatever happened to the dog meat general, Zhang Zongchang. Now, this whole sidebar to the warlord era that I want to quickly mention concerned him and his former right-hand man in this military organization, Liu Chanyan, a.k.a. the killer. So you know right away, he's no Yan Shishan. During his glory years running Shandong province, Zhang Zongchang had two main guys watching his back, Chu Yupu and Liu Chanyan, as warlords went, as far as the superlative of the worst elements that warlords embodied, these three set the standard. Thanks to them, Shandong province had a hard decade and a half. They epitomized all the most well-known warlord antics that peasants had become accustomed to all these years, standing by, helpless, while warlord troops grabbed what they could, using all the intimidation tactics that an army at your beck and call can muster. Villagers, especially those in Shandong province where all three of these guys operated, were made to hand over food, anything of value, including their pack animals. And to escape the worst of the looting, villages and towns would be asked, quotation marks around the word asked, to pay a departure tax that would spare them the worst atrocities and allow the troops to go quietly. And same thing when these bandit forces would march into a village or town. You know, they demand some kind of welcome payment that, you know, that would guarantee the locals there wouldn't be any trouble with them passing through or staying around to rest up and live off their hospitality. Everything about these guys always came down to money. And those who had the least were forced to hand over the most. And when famines, floods, and other natural disasters hit, you could be sure, whatever relief supplies donated by the city folk or from overseas, yeah, that stuff would often miss its mark and get plundered and sold on the black market. Banks were forced to extend loans to these warlords, and they knew they'd never get repaid. After so many years, the warlords yeah, simply became a cost of doing business. Anyone or any organization that was well-endowed financially were targeted by warlords and forced to buy these worthless bonds, you know, that their military government would issue. 
I already mentioned warlords were big proponents of, you know, printing worthless money and these outrageous denominations. People from the top to the bottom of society were constantly being shaken down by warlords and their subordinates. They levied taxes on so many daily use items and even on prostitutes. In many places, there were dozens and even hundreds of different taxes on seemingly every product or service that you could tax. And if this wasn't bad enough, sometimes to accelerate the amount of taxes that could be farmed, warlords would demand taxes be paid years in advance, and they'd even be applied retroactively. And the great Chinese national hero, Lin Zexu, who stood up to the foreign powers in 1839, if he had lived to see how huge of a comeback opium had made and what a cash cow it had become again, he would have bowed his head in shame. Opium monopolies to market the drug in certain areas were sold off. And you could bet these warlords levied taxes on production, transport, the sale, and the use of opium. It was a huge money spinner, as the drug trade always is. If you recall, Chang Song Chang's army got walloped in the northern expedition and got taken down more than a few notches. This was due in part to the defection of his now former right-hand man, Liu Zhenyan, to the NRA side. Yeah, he was another one, biting the hand that fed him. Well, after getting chased out of Shandong, Chang Song Chang ultimately ended up in Dalian and pretty much got high all day, gambled and engaged in all the excesses he was well known for. And what was left of his army, though still loyal to Chang Song Chang, well, let's just say they got a little flabby and undisciplined as they awaited their boss's comeback. Liu Zhenyan, the killer, had profited greatly from his defection in October 1928 to Chiang Kai-shek's side. He got put in charge of a portion of eastern Shandong province. What's important to know is that life under Liu Zhenyan's rule in eastern Shandong was shockingly unpleasant. I've already given you an idea of the kind of things that went on. Almost as soon as Liu Chenyan took over, the people began rising up against him and kept him preoccupied dealing with all these tempests in a teapot boiling over everywhere. So in early 1929, Chang Song Chang, seeing how Liu was distracted with all these uprisings and also itching to restore his fortunes, started stirring things up in Shandong province in his determination to bring Liu Zhenyan down. He cobbled together a rebel army of former troops and other men without a master looking to get back into the game. And this dogmeat general launched this rebellion in northeast Shandong against Liu Zhenyan. And not much to say, except that it didn't last long, January to May 1929. But the kinds of things that went on, the kinds of things the civilian population had to endure... Well, it gave the rape of Nanjing a run for its money in terms of wanton violence and destruction. Zhang Zong Chang, famously, while all this fighting was going on, was constantly partying and living the life for which he had become accustomed. He was the head of the rebels, but always found time to, you know, have some fun and relaxation. Liu Zhenyan, despite his troops' best efforts, by April 1929, this backstabbing former right-hand man to the dogmeat general was losing a few key battles and on the defensive. All Zhang Zong Chang's army had to do now was go in for the kill. And maybe, I don't know, after spoken too much opium, who knows, the general carne de Piro, Zhang Zong Chang, 
He dreamed up this League of Legends, who he tried to bring together at this hour, you know, to take out the KMT. His remaining trusty right-hand man, Chu Yu Pu, as well as Yan Shishan, Wu Pei Fu, Bai Chongxi, Qi Xie Yuan, and others were called upon to unite as one in this common cause. Well, needless to say, the reason why you probably might not recall anything happening involving this, this warlord supergroup is because this whole idea fizzled out before anything came of it. But this was the kind of madness going on in mid-1929. And I haven't even gotten to the Central Plains War that's also going on. So let's finish this up first. As soon as Zhang Zongchang got a taste of victory in this rebellion against Liu Zhenyan, his troops, they just fell to pieces and discipline broke down to the point where his forces, the other rebel soldiers and officers, everyone, the whole thing just devolved into another classic free-for-all with all these soldiers and bandits preying on the lives of every villager they came upon in every single nook and cranny of the northeast Shandong countryside. You know, if you go to Manchuria, Liaoning mostly, but Heilongjiang and Jilin as well, there are a lot of people living there who came from Shandong. And it was during this warlord rebellion in northeastern Shandong during the first half of 1929 that so many of them migrated north to Manchuria. Zhang Tongchang, after looking like he was going to make that comeback, faced a complete rout on the battlefield. and Whatever he had managed to hold together was lost. He tried to escape to Dalian on April 23, 1929, but the Japanese wouldn't let him stay. So he got sent off to Japan. We'll get back to him later. And whilst cooling his heels in Japan, after this failed uprising, <laughs> he one day accidentally shot some prince who was a cousin to the deposed last emperor, Puyi. That clan was a very interesting royal family in exile. Anyways, by the summer of 1929, Liu Zhenyan started mopping up from the defeat he had handed to all these rebel allies of the dogmeat general. But during the second half of 1929... Liu Zhenyan focused all his attention on wiping out this other problem that had been dogging him all along while he was trying to vanquish Zhang Zongchang and his rebel armies. These were the Red Spears. A very interesting story from Chinese history. Lots of legends and tales about these guys. These Red Spears had been harassing the warlord armies for too many years and had become very emboldened with their actions. Their numbers... Yeah, were as high as fifty to 60,000 trained and fearless troops. The Red Spears Society, the Hongqianghui, they came about as a result of the lawlessness throughout the provinces. Some places were worse than others, of course, but the peasantry living out in the villages, especially during these years when Zhang Zongchang, Chu Yupu, and Liu Chanian were robbing and a-stabbing, looting and a-shooting, and plundering the land... Their troops, as well as these roaming gangs of bandits, ex-soldiers who departed their units, and other assorted ruffians, well, they had developed a good eye for a hot meal and a village to ransack. And to defend against these bandit gangs, these villages, in an age-old tradition in Chinese history, would pool their resources and maintain these rural defense organizations who would be just big and scary enough to keep these roving bandit gangs moving on to easier meat elsewhere. And in that part of China, they became known as Red Spears. Some were less ragtag than others and were well-organized and could 
inflict some heavy damage when the times called for that. They mostly operated out of the provinces of Hubei, Henan, and Shandong, as well as in Manchuria. And for the entire time, from the establishment of Manchukuo in 1932 until Japan's end in China came in 1945, these red spears were a snake in the boot to the Japanese Guangdong army and resisted them whenever the opportunity presented itself. It was this horrible and bloody period of intra-warlord fighting in Shandong that forced so many peasants to join the ranks of the Red Spears. Probably the worst of these uprisings happened in northeast Shandong from 1928 to 1929, when these events I've just described were all happening. Let me quote from Elizabeth J. Perry's book, Rebels and Revolutionaries in North China, 1845 to 1945. Quote, like the boxers, the Red Spears evidenced a heavy dose of popular religious inspiration, members believing themselves impervious to enemy weapons if they observed the necessary rituals, pronounced the proper incantations, and swallowed the prescribed charms. And again, resembling the boxers, the Red Spears were heirs to another equally vital legacy, the militia tradition of rural self-defense. End quote. When the chaos of the early Republican era reached a fever pitch after the fall of the Qing Dynasty, the people of North China especially had to put up with almost 20 years of getting jacked by all these bandits and soldiers from warlord armies, which in a lot of cases were one and the same. So the Red Spears initially came into being as protectors of the countryside. Not every village could be defended. There were too many spread out across Shandong, Hebei, and Henan, where the Worst of the atrocities were committed. There were a number of large and small uprisings involving the Red Spears fighting back against the twin terrors of Shandong province. First, the Dogmeat General in 1926, and then again in 1928-1929 against the killer, Liu Zhenyan. In a 1926 issue of Chinese Students Monthly, someone wrote of these defenders of the oppressed, quote, these boxers call themselves Red Spears. While the object of the previous uprising was purely anti-foreign, the Red Spears is a spontaneous peasants' movement. The name of Red Spear Society must have existed five to six years ago. There was a group of gymnastic people who had the useful and necessary habit of defending themselves and their villages by long and red-tasseled spears. As an institution, it may be just the remnants of the boxers. End quote. You know, if you Google Red Spears and martial arts, there are all kinds of stories, legends, and styles that grew out of their society, especially in training and hand-to-hand -hand combat. And they used these martial arts skills that they developed to defend their villages, homes, and livelihoods against this never-ending scourge of banditry and lawlessness. By early 1929, the excesses of Liu Zhenyan's rule were so oppressive that the Red Spears directed their efforts at bringing him down. It all started with mutinies within Liu Zhenyan's ranks late in January 1929, just as Jiang Songchang was starting the rebellion up in northeast Shandong. A lot of these mutinied soldiers and officers joined with the Red Spears against Liu Zhenyan, who again had his hands full dealing with this warlord rebellion in northeast Shandong. The Red Spears use this chaos as a way to organize and grow their numbers. But as I said, end of April 1929, despite having the upper hand, 
Zhang Songchang was defeated, and this allowed Liu's armies to focus their attention on problem number two. Okay, I won't drag this out. Basically, as big and tough as the Red Spears were, in the end, Liu Chenyan packed a mean punch. They didn't call him the killer for nothing. Jerry Lee Lewis, too. Liu had a formidable army, the best weapons, and was more than happy to carry out a scorched earth policy all over the parts of Shandong his troops marched in his relentless mission to snuff out every possible Red Spear base around Yentai and other parts of the province. And before the end of the year, 1929, the job was done and the Red Spears had been neutralized, but their legend lived on. Okay, let's get back to where we left off with Chiang Kai-shek. Things appeared okay on the surface in the weeks and months following the raising of the nationalist flag in Beijing, or Beiping, as it was renamed following the conquest. End of 1928, I told you, we already know who's grumbling behind Jiang's back. So on the symbolic day of October 10th, this time of the year, 1928, Jiang Kai-shek was formally named the head of the republic. He was also the top man in the party and the commander-in-chief of the military. Not as many titles as the current president of China, but still, he was at the peak of his prestige and power on the Chinese mainland. The Nanjing Decade was off and running. As 1929 dawned, it came time for action. Jiang had made it clear what his intentions were. Now it was time to show your cards. Jiang intended to fold all these warlords and their armies and assets into this new centralized military force, with Jiang in charge, of course. And a few of these warlords, as I mentioned, they began to have buyer's remorse when, considering this new life they had to look forward to, you know, punching a clock for someone else versus having the absolute power they enjoyed all these years being the Dujun, or military governor of their province or territory. Yeah, to give them a little face and draw them into the government, Jiang had made Yan Shishan his minister of the interior and Feng Yuxiang minister of war. Eh, not bad, except after the life they had lived, eh, those two were bored with their jobs in two seconds flat. You know, Jiang Kai-shek didn't give a speech in front of a big sign that said mission accomplished, but it seemed, as far as the northern expedition went, that it was over. But alas... This miserable and destructive epic refused to die and go away. All these former warlords, they all basically bolted from Jiang's Nanjing government and went back into the warlording business of protecting their turf, farming their provinces for all they can get, and keeping the central authorities at bay. And always keeping an eye out for any kind of opportunity that knocked on their door. Feng Yuxiang went back to controlling his parts of Inner Mongolia, Gansu, Shanxi, and Hunan. Yan Shishan, of course, held down the fort in his home province of Shanxi. The young marshal, Zhang Xueliang, he too, for the time being, had given up on Jiang and was disappointed with Jiang's plans for Manchuria. But he remained neutral and waited on the fence to see how things played out. And as for the, the Guangxi warlords who had served Jiang so well, Li Zongren and Bai Chongxi, they were the first ones to walk away from him in March 1929. And they headed back to their strongholds in Guangdong and Guangxi. And with all this resistance to Jiang Kai-shek wafting in the air, Wang Jingwei 
saw an opening to get back into the fray. So he returned to China and joined up with Feng Yuxiang and Yan Shishan in a rival political group called the Enlarged Conference of the KMT. So Jiang once again had to waste precious time that could have been more productively spent trying to get his Nanjing government up and running, carrying out the the massive reconstruction of the country and try to rebuild the nation to its former glory before the Qing emperors and the Republican-era warlords allowed it to decay. It seemed like it was going to come down to one last and final hurrah. And this was the Central Plains War of March 1929 to November 1930. And of all the wars I've mentioned, going back to the Zhili Anhui War, when the forces of Cao Kun and Wu Pei Fu defeated Duan Qirui's Anhui army back in 1920, this one was the most destructive. In the thousands of years of Chinese history, these lands had never seen anything like this. And there was still a lot worse to come over the next couple decades. Now, here we are at the end of 1929, so many years later, and these warlords, the ones left standing, they were making this last-ditch effort to hold on to what they had gotten used to all these years. And everything I mentioned about the warlord rebellion in northeast Shandong and the rise and fall of the Red Spears, well, that was all going on concurrently to this. Early 1929... The Warlord Rebellion was over, and late 1929, Liu Chenyan had put the Red Spears to the sword. And one other thing, we'll come back and look at this more closely on another day, but right around this time, Jiang also set up his very effective secret police organization. His old pal from the Wampoa Military Academy, Dai Li, the Himmler of China, was called in to head up the Army Secret Police, and Chen Li Fu... Yeah, he was put in charge of the innocuous-sounding investigation section of the KMT organization department. Yeah, you didn't want those guys knocking on your door after hours. Much more about these two guys later in the year. I know several of you have written to me over the years asking when Dai Li was going to get his CHP moment. Anyways, in November 1929, Feng Yuxiang led the charge and formed a warlord coalition to oppose Jiang Kai-shek, who everyone knew was coming after them. And the eternal foe of Jiang Kai-shek, Wang Jingwei, now part of this group, tried to resurrect the KMT left wing and form a band called the Reorganizationalists, whose goal was to put an end to Jiang Kai-shek's so-called dictatorial ways. And these leftists and warlords all banded together and formed a rival government in Beijing to oppose Jiang's government based in Nanjing. And the one who was made the figurehead leader of this rival government was good old Yan Shishan, the model governor. He wasn't happy with Jiang moving in on his turf, so he ended up joining the anti-Jiang coalition. I mentioned Yan Shishan graced the cover of Time in 1930 with the caption, China's future president. (laughs) Yeah, this was that time. That cover ended up being a precursor to uh, Dewey Defeats Truman. So who stuck with Jiang and fought on his side? Well, for one, and I haven't mentioned them much, were the warlords who ran western China, all Muslims, all members of the Ma clique. When hostilities had broken out in March 1929, on paper at least, with so many warlords teamed up against him, it wasn't looking good for Jiang or the Nanjing government, but a combination of... Good luck 
and bad coordination on the Warlord Coalition's part helped turn the tide of the Central Plains War in favor of the NRA. By the summer of 1930, Jiang began fighting back, and his generals performed well against the Guangxi warlords Li Zongren and Bai Chongxi. Feng Yuxiang, too, up in his North China lands, went down in defeat. Then on September 18, 1930, Zhang Xueliang hopped down off that fence and entered the war on Jiang's side. Now, following this, he immediately went in and took Beijing, and with Zhang Xueliang entering the war on Jiang's side, that ended up tipping the scales sufficiently enough so that on November 4th, Feng Yuxiang and Yan Shishan both threw in the towel. They had tried one last time to keep the warlord era going, but by November 1930, it really was over. The Central Plains War pretty much ended it. This whole Central Plains War, the upshot of it all, aside from finally putting an end to the most offending warlords, well, it forced Chiang Kai-shek to take his eye off the ball in his campaigns to destroy Mao Zedong and the Jiangxi Soviet that he was preparing to set up in 1931. While Jiang was battling it out with the warlords in the Central Plains War, the communists had ample time to re-energize and get reorganized for all the trials and tribulations that lay ahead. Anyways, I knew this episode was going to run a little long, and we sort of glossed over a conflict that, from March 1929 to November 1930, resulted in the deaths of about 150,000 nationalist soldiers, and though we can never be certain, probably just as many on the warlord's side. And whatever happened to all these guys, these rascals, these, these permanent members of Chinese history's rogues gallery? <laughs> I'll just run through them real quick. Duan Chi Rei, after his comeback as chief executive following the second Zhirli Feng Tian War from 1922 to 24, hey, he didn't have much of a base anymore. Most of his Anhui clique allies had already thrown in their lot with Zhang Zolin. Duan ended up in Tianjin, living below the radar, and died at the age of 71 in 1936 in Shanghai. Cao Kun, I left you hanging with him, after he got removed as president in Feng Yuxiang's Beijing coup of 1924. He served two years under house arrest and then ended up in that great city of exiles, Tianjin, where he died in 1938, age 75. It didn't end well for Cao Kun, but... At least he got to be president. Qi Xieyuan, he ended badly. This Jirli stalwart, besides going down in defeat on the wrong side of the Central Plains War, he ended up being executed in 1946 for collaborating with the Japanese during the war. Zhang Xueliang, of course, later on in December 1936, in one of the defining moments in his life, famously participated in the Xi'an incident involving the kidnapping of Chiang Kai-shek and everything that followed in the wake of that tragedy. He surrendered to Chiang after it was done and lived under house arrest for pretty much the rest of his life. He was taken to Taiwan in 1949 and lived a quiet life up in the north suburbs of Taipei. When Chiang Kai-shek passed away on April 5, 1975, Zhang Xueliang was released from this symbolic house arrest. In 1993, he moved to Hawaii, where he died in 2001 at the age of 100. Chairman Mao and 
Premier Zhou both tried to get the young marshal to come visit China, but like many who left in 49, he never went back. Liu Zhenyan, the wretched and violent warlord of eastern Shandong who caused so much suffering to the local populace, he ended up on Jiang's side. Maybe the bad side. He got sent to Jiangxi province to join others who were trying to blast Mao Zedong and the communists out of Jinggangshan. He wasn't too hot on the whole thing and ended up being executed in 1935 for refusing to obey Jiang's direct order. (laughs) Quite a lot of violence and depravity condensed into the only 37 years that the killer walked this earth. Wu Peifu? In an obituary about Wu Peifu, Life magazine called him, quote, China's only honest warlord. (laughs) He laid low until the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out in 1937. Japanese had attempted to set up this rival government up in North China in 1939 and went to a lot of trouble to try and recruit Wu Peifu as the puppet head of this government. (laughs) He refused, and for his defiance, the Japanese authorities, if you believe some accounts, had him poisoned to death. The New York Times, in their obituary of Wu Peifu, written on December 5, 1939, said it this way, quote, Marshal Wu Peifu, Chinese poet-soldier, died today after an operation for an infected tooth. The Japanese news agency Domei reported, Marshal Wu had lived in obscurity since his armies were routed in 1926 by Chiang Kai-shek. The Japanese had tried vainly to enlist his aid. Marshal Wu was one of the cultivated Chinese of our times who attained renown not only for his scholarship, but as a military man. End quote. He lived to 65. And Sun Chuanfang, the northern expedition, pretty much put him out of business. He ended up in Tianjin, where he became a monk and lived in a monastery. Ten years after... Sun Chuanfang executed one of his commanders, Shi Chongbin, and mounted his head on the end of a pike. The man's daughter, Shi Jianqiao, caught up with the former Nanking warlord in 1935 and avenged her father's death with a bullet to the brain for Sun Chuanfang. And this avenging daughter went on trial for murder. She received a government pardon, and her act of vengeance was considered justified. And Zhang Songchang, the good old dog meat general, hey, live by the sword, die by the sword. He too had it coming, and he got it in 1932. Just like with Sun Chuanfang, an avenging angel came and smote him for killing his father, the general Zheng Jinsheng, in 1927. His son, Zheng Jicheng, caught up with the 50 year old dog meat general and blew him away right at the Jinan train station. And Li Zongren, the Guangxi warlord, (laughs) boy, did he ever have a wild ride. After that whole debacle with the rival government up in Beijing in 1929 and surrendering to Chiang Kai-shek, he ended up in his stronghold of Guangxi and reconciled with Jiang after the Mukden incident in 1931 when Japan invaded Manchuria and started taking over up there. He fought brilliantly against Japan during those terrible years in the late 1930s and early 40s. After Jiang bailed in 1949 and fled to Taiwan, the dubious honor of the presidency of the Republic of China on the mainland went to Li Zongren. He ended up leaving as well, but he went to the United States instead. Zhou Enlai invited him back in 1965, which was a big deal back then, and Li Zongren took him up on the offer and returned to China, where he died in Beijing in 1969 at the age of 78. 
The Hunan warlord, Tang Shengzhi, yeah, he had a rough road. After breaking with Jiang and going his own way, he returned to the KMT fold to help in the war effort against the Japanese. And Tang Shengzhi, if you recall from that past Nanjing Massacre two-part series, CHP 182 and 183, he was the one Jiang had put in charge of defending the capital at Nanjing. He didn't have a chance, and during that horrific week in the cold winter of December 1937... Tang Shengzhi ended up being overwhelmed by the Japanese war machine and ordered a general retreat, leaving the city of Nanjing essentially undefended against the Japanese troops. Eh, he never lived that one down. The one who allowed the rape of Nanjing to happen. There was nothing he could have done, but he had to wear that badge of shame a long time. He stayed behind in China after liberation and died in Changsha, Hunan, in 1970, aged 80. Yan Shishan, the model governor, well, after the Japanese started spreading out all over North China, he fought them at every turn. They also tried to recruit him to be part of some puppet position, but he wouldn't have any of that. He fought the Japanese until he couldn't fight anymore. He had even cooperated with the communists for three years, from 1936 to 1939, in fighting Japan. But... He had second thoughts about cooperating with Mao and later turned against him and fought the communists bitterly throughout the Civil War. And after putting up one hell of a fight, his army was defeated in Taiyuan in April 1949. For the next several desperate months, Yan Shishan got stuck in Nanjing, mediating between the feuding Jiang Kai-shek and Li Zongren. That was a thankless task. And after he took that final flight to Taiwan... Yan Shishan lived a quiet life. Jiang had promised him the sky once they got to Taiwan, but in the end, Jiang sidelined Yan Shishan, and there was nothing to do for the model governor except live a quiet retirement, writing books, and no doubt looking back on quite a life. He died on May 24, 1960, in Taipei at the age of 76. Feng Yuxiang, don't want to forget him, he was defeated in the Central Plains War and got into the criticizing Jiang Kai-shek business. He vociferously lambasted Jiang for not taking the fight to the Japanese aggressively enough. Feng did his part to stand up to Japan in his slice of northern China, where he had traditionally held sway. There was no love lost or trust between Feng and Jiang. And the Christian warlord was no match for Jiang Kai-shek's political astuteness. In the end... Well, he ended up holding a number of positions in Jiang's government while it was still on the mainland. And then after 1945, he ended up becoming a major critic of Jiang and sympathized more with the communists. In any case, Feng Yuxiang ended up dying mysteriously on board a vessel sailing on the Black Sea in 1948 that had caught fire and sank. You can visit his tomb today next time you find yourself in Jinan. It's located not too far away near Taishan. You know, all the way until the end came in 1949, to be honest, Jiang never got rid of these guys. They were defanged following the Central Plains War, but they were still around. Jiang didn't mess with them, and they didn't mess with Jiang. In fact, their mutual hatred of communism was a kind of binding agent that allowed these disparate frenemies to have some semblance of a common cause. So if the Northern Expedition's goal was to unify China under one government, you can say it wasn't achieved. And in some ways, 1930, 
wasn't looking too terribly different from 1922. Okay, let us abruptly end things right here. I do hope everyone who had been asking me to cover this topic all these years left the table full and satisfied. I left out more than I left in, so if this period in China is of particular interest to you, there are plenty of books and videos out there for you to peruse should you want to take a deeper dive. One more mention, if you haven't subscribed yet, Matt Sheehan and Holly He. Go check out Heartland Mainland, the Iowa China podcast. Matt and Holly spent a lot of time traveling around the Hawkeye State so you didn't have to. And what they've learned about U.S.-China relations through this adventure in the corn and soybean fields and livestock farms of Iowa will surprise you. Matt Sheehan, he who brought us the venerable Chinafornia newsletter and his magnum opus, up till now anyway, the Trans-Pacific Experiment. Matt Sheehan and Holly He, both part of that think tank over at the Paulson Institute. Heartland Mainland, the Iowa-China podcast. My highest recommendations. Okay, I get the hint. Seems Patreon isn't for everyone. That's okay. If you want to support the show, but you're not the Patreon type, I fully understand. You can show your love and support by going to www.paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Quick, easy, and painless. If you didn't write that down, go to teacup.media and there's a link at the show page. Okay, a new topic next time? A good one. Recommended by one of you beautiful people, my beloved listeners and fans of this China History Podcast. Going to be 10 years old in June of this year, 2020. Where did the time go? Well, I hope you enjoyed that, as Bob Packett used to say. Whatever happened to him? This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, calling on all good and decent people everywhere to please come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.